0: Welcome. I am here with Darren Austin Hall, who I am thrilled to share this space with to discuss the various aspects of healing and transformation through sound. So Darren is currently joining from Scotland on tour. And as a sound healer, shamanic singer and teacher, Darren has provided crystal ball performances and meditations for luminaries such as Graham Hancock, Louise Hay, Teal Swan, Gabber Mate, David Avocado Wolf and Wim Hof. He is also an acclaimed and published writer with a new book called Love's Revolution and has created numerous courses, workshops, and concert experiences. Thank you so much, Darren, for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here with you.
0: Thank you. I am really looking forward to this, and especially with regards to your modality and extensive background. So I'd love to hear, just to kick this off, I'd love to hear of a significant turning point that has led you into this practice and one of the greatest possible breakthroughs that you've experienced uh, with your work.
1: Well, I would say one of the biggest turning points of my life was meeting my astrologer, which may sound mundane, but it was pro, I'm 44 now. So this was about when I was about 28, 29, I was kind of in the orbit of my Saturn return, which is this 30 year cycle of deep transformation that we go through. And, if anyone's seen a very good astrologer, you know, they see you better than yourself, you know, in some occasions, because this this science of astrology is really an ancient art of, of really looking into one's soul and the design of our souls and our reality through these stellar alignments. And so when I walked in the door, I was studying Chinese medicine in Toronto, Canada, and I was feeling very confused about my path. I wasn't sure if Chinese medicine was my path. And Within five minutes, um, this individual who's now become a dear friend and a dear teacher of mine said, well, you know, I can see in your chart that you're supposed to maybe be a sound healer. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard this phrase before in my life. I was kind of perplexed by it, but it was exciting. Something was captivating about it. And I asked her, well, where can I learn more about that? And she said, just Google it. And as mundane as it sounds, that Google search changed everything. I remember going home that night and researching for about seven hours till dawn in absolute ecstasy because I knew deep down in my heart that I had found exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Um, And then synchronistically, a few days later, I saw my first Sound Bath Sound Journey concert uh, as it usually happens when you start to walk on your path. So that was very, very um, significant turning point, I would say. And in terms of like a breakthrough, you know, I, I look at the early stages of my career as my, like, Beatles in Germany phase. A lot of people might know that when the Beatles uh, were a pub band in Germany before they became very famous, they used to play every night for, I think it was two or three years. And they, they attest that to being when they really learned the craft of musicianship. So for the first two, three years, I was just playing and playing and playing at yoga studios, mostly for yoga classes, and just basically taking any gig I could get. And it was a really nice and dynamic time in my life. Um, But I remember a a breakthrough moment happened for me when I released my second album, The Tantra of Truth, which was kind of my my breakthrough album in a way. It was the first album that I kind of paired my crystal bowls with my guitar music and um, what I call an album of shamanic pop music. And I worked with this extraordinary producer. And there's this big yoga conference in Toronto. I don't know if you were in that culture, but they have this huge yoga conference, one of the biggest in the world. And I was the headliner in 2013. It was kind of random. Um, I played there in 2012 and shared sound healing workshops. And the person who curated it just loved what I had to do and said, you know, in 2013, you know, you do whatever you want. And I was like, well, could I play this concert on the Saturday night, the main event? And I thought maybe 50 people would show up and uh, there was about 350 people who showed up in this giant room. And, you know, I would have thought that I would have been incredibly anxious, um, but it was one of the most comfortable concerts of my life. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize that um, I liked being in front of a huge audience. You know, I was cracking jokes and the music that came out was just transmitted at a whole new level. And, and that felt like a very breakthrough moment for me of just learning how to work with my charisma on a larger stage and not shy away um, and not contract. And I was also a student of shaking medicine at the time, which was really priming my body to be very energized in states that would otherwise constrict us. Because in shaking medicine, we actually learn to go toward anxiety and shake into it and actually Learn that a lot of anxiety, especially when we're about to perform, is actually the solar plexus chakra trying to prime us with more energy. But in our culture, we're kind of like antagonistic against ecstatic states or intense feeling states. We often like fear that energy mm-hmm. and we try and constrict it. So what I've learned is to really just shake and expand that energy. And and I used that that night. And it was a very life-changing moment for me.
0: And let's go into how sound heals. What is it? What's, what's happening in the body when sound is reaching someone and activating energies within them, movement within them? What's going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I teach sound healing as a training in my Source Resonance Academy. And, you know, it, it's so exciting to be in the realm of sound medicine because it's such a burgeoning and new paradigm. And, you know, so to define how sound heals, I mean, there's such a mystery about it still, which I love, you know, because it means that we have much more to innovate and pioneer into. But we are discovering incredible things about our reality ever since the quantum physics revolution, which was really 100 years ago, it was, it was catalyzed. Um, but especially in recent decades, we've discovered a lot about how our reality is truly energetic and vibrational. You know, the, the Indian mystics would call this physical reality Maya or an illusion, uh, because, you know, the material structure of it is actually a very narrow bandwidth of phenomena. There's actually all these other dimensions that are kind of layered into each other and a lot of more energetic things going on that our five senses are quite limited in apprehending. Uh, But I think a lot of us are starting to realize this more energetic vibrational state of reality. It's already in our vernacular. You know, people say, oh, I like that person's vibe. What's that mean? Vibration. Or I resonate with this person's idea, which is a prime, you know, sound healing term, meaning when two frequencies kind of share a likeness. Um, But, you know, so on that level, because we are vibrational, when we are listening to vibrational art, which is music or sounds, uh, the idea is that those vibrations are affecting us on a very, very deep level. And I think most people commonly know this through their love of music. You know, people listen to music to imagine their lives. They listen to music and there's this kind of immediate shift in their emotions, whether it's amplifying what they're already feeling, like a sense of joy, or it can shift them into melancholy, you know, when we hear a very sad song. So there's always been something about music and sound that's very immediate. I think it's because. It is speaking to that vibrational essence that we are. And, you know, I mean, I used to be a yoga teacher as well. So I'm very steeped into the Vedic wisdom of India. And, you know, they talk about how reality is basically wombed from this fifth element that's called akasha, which is basically defined as the luminous space or the field that is basically everything, what scientists would maybe call the zero point field, which is exciting that they're starting to see this as well. And it is highly connected to sound. And they say that everything comes out of this field. So when we're working on that level, it's just another confirmation that we're working on a very causal level. And the last thing I'll share is, according to you know Pythagoras, who's an ancient kind of sound healing mystic, you know he says that sound and music helps to make soul adjustments to people. And when I do my source resonance training, I, I've really borrowed that from Pythagoras, and and I, I wield that as kind of one of the primary things that, that sound and music can do for people. So when it comes to soul adjusting, what I really see that as is the soul is very connected to our psychology, our psyche, you know? So when people go on a sound journey, which is what a lot of us sound healers call our music or journey music, um, the idea is that people will close their eyes and they'll go into a kind of a meditative visual state where they will have visions, where they'll see themselves where they might have resolutions of, you know, dark things in their life, or they might see, you know, more actualized potentials in themselves. It kind of soundtracks this mystical consciousness. And, you know, the crystal bowls, which are the primary instruments I work with, they have been proven to step us into the alpha brainwave state and even deeper into theta, which are deep forms of meditation and visioning states that uh, most of us don't have access to in material, just normal discursive reality.
0: And how about voice, too? It's, um, I listen to the mm. uh, songs of Source, which um, I definitely want to recommend everyone to listen to that because it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, would you call it chanting? Is that what, what it is? Is it a form of chant or what would it be?
1: Yeah, say? I mean, I, I've coined a word called Source singing mm. um, that really feels good to me because I know there's this idea of, I mean, I've used the phrase song channeling before as well because... When you listen to, I mean, Songs of Source is my most probably shamanic sound healing album. And a lot of the voice work that I'm doing there is is without words. It's kind of this channeling in the moment, like what, you know, a more trained musician might call a vocable um, or vocalizations. But for me, it's actually a deep channeling. You know, I'm really connecting. It's almost like prayers coming through me. Um, And there are moments where being a source singer, being a kind of sacred musician, another way of looking at it, where I'll feel different spirits come in and I'll feel these heightened connections to things that are very profound. And so for me, it's about kind of restoring in a way, because when we look at the ancient practices of music, um, music was a lot more an improvisational art. I mean, the word music means the art of the muses. You know, and the muses, according to the ancient Greeks and Romans, were these like spiritual entities that bridge us to higher realms and then bring this artistic creative force through us here so it's always in this collaboration with the divine and music is said to be the like quintessential art of these entities you know because they rule over things like epic poetry and astronomy but music there's something special about music So this idea that we are channeling um, has been very refreshing for myself and also a lot of musicians come to my trainings and my sharings, you know, and just restoring in them, you know, that idea, you know, when a song comes through, you know, when we all have that creative spark where it comes through and and that's always this beautiful moment. You know, what I like to just really zoom in on that, like what is happening in that moment, like what is really happening, you know, so that we can start to remove the ego, you know, because a lot of us can get very egotistical by our art. Um, which can create lots of problems. Um, but really it's about seeing these things as coming through us and streaming through us. Um, and for me as a singer, it's it's probably one of the most essential spiritual practices I do because it is about removing the ego and just being this like clear uh, vessel for divine beauty to come through.
0: I could tell, I could really tell with this, with this, um, the sound that was coming through you, it was it's not forced it's not thought of it is just in flow and it's beautiful it's amazing mm-hmm. there's so much depth to it there really is so i wanted to also ask you more on the ancient teachings let's go back a little bit mm-hmm. and you, you've already touched on some of it but i'm more curious about what you have come across on your path um learning and exploring this modality or modality sounds like you do a few things but um what are the the, the most powerful ancient t- teachings and wisdom that you'd like to share or that has transformed your work?
1: Wow, there's so much, you know, um, it's been such a passion of mine to be a student of ancient wisdom. Um, I mean, what a blessed age that we live in with the internet, where there's just true liberation of all this knowledge. You know, in some ways I look at, you know, the internet as being a a restoration, a reconstitution of the Library of Alexandria, which was the famed biggest library that's ever existed as far as we know in history on earth that was tragically burned to the ground by the Romans. Um and I think the most fascinating thing I've learned about ancient wisdom is um you know I've I've had the privilege being in Canada um or what the indigenous would call Turtle Island of actually working with indigenous elders and some of them have been very like f- formal teachers in my life. Um, and one of my teachers who was a Mohawk elder, she she put me on this kind of mission to go and find the European indigenous traditions, uh, which I was totally ignorant of until she actually told me about it, which is quite ironic that I have an indigenous, um, someone who, you know, my ancestors have colonized, giving me this profound teaching that, hey, you know what, maybe the reason you guys were colonizing because you had lost touch with your own indigenous roots. So you saw us as kind of aliens. Um, And that took me on a journey that I'm still on to this day. Uh, But one of the most fascinating stops along the way on that journey was discovering the ancient mythology of the earth goddess, who was called Sophia or Sophia. And there's this book called The Sophia Code that's become Mm -hmm. very popularized. But my entry into this is the work of John M. Lash uh, in his book, Not in His Image which is an extrapolation of the Nag Hammadi Library, which was discovered in 1945 in Upper Egypt, just by a humble farmer found these urns in a cave on his land. And in the urns were uh, these very fragmented uh, scrolls written in Coptic, ancient Greek. And they lay out um, mystery school teachings um, of the pagans, which was a derogatory term for indigenous Europeans, as I began to learn. And they were by 200 A.D. in the Roman Empire was punishable by death to be a pagan. Um, And in these documents, which were translated in English in, I think, 1974, which was the same year that James Lovelock, the great eco-environmentalist, came up with Gaia theory, which I find very coincidental. Um, In these documents, they talk about how, you know, the planet Earth is a star goddess called Sophia. And she came from a galactic center, the galactic center, which the Greeks called the Pleroma. This is where the gods and goddesses reside. And that she designed humanity to be this very divine you know, species. And, and there was a certain drama that happened where she chose to leave her galactic center home and come and turn into a planet to help us uh, subsist as a species. Um, and that story has become something that I teach in workshops called Gaia Awakening, um, I'm even f- formalizing in the early stages, a whole Institute based on re the idea of a mystery school, which were all, you know, devoted to being in connection with the earth and an eco-spiritual matter, as far as I understand. And my last album, uh, honor all creation, it's a double album. It was a concept album that I recorded during the pandemic when I was stuck in Costa Rica. Um, mm-hmm. and it's all about, you know, these, these, these connections to this, to the Goddess, but but you know, bottom line, simply just realizing now when I look out, I'm just looking at the Scottish Highlands outside that the earth is alive. She is a she is our truest teacher, according to one of my other indigenous teachers. Um, that has been such a life-changing um nugget of ancient wisdom that is really perennial, like it's it's undying, and and I feel a lot of the ancient wisdom is flowering again because we're realizing. They had tremendous spot-on knowledge about things that we need today in a yeah. big way.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling that too. I'm, I'm, I have been actually lately called to, to practice or to learn more about the indigenous um, wisdom. And it, oh. it's true, coming from Canada here, it's this they hold the answers, the the great ancient uh, wisdom and knowledge um, of our land. And yet, what have we done to them? You know, and so I'm, I'm really. Absolutely. I'm really supportive of getting it back, you know, bringing it back more and learning more about it and bringing it to the forefront. So it's beautiful. I love that you said that. Uh, Let's talk about Mm. the shadow. The shadow, one of my favorite topics.
1: We're both wearing black. I love it. (laughs)
0: This is my my color. This is
1: your uniform. (laughs) It
0: is totally. Uh, So the shadow right <laughs> how has it showed up in your work how have you worked through it maybe even on your own or with others what has it taught you where has it taken you
1: yeah i think i think the whole concept of the shadow came to me and another work that i'm very engaged in is men's work um you know so years ago i was traveling in india and i met this incredible man from portugal who introduced me to the king more magician lover book written by Douglas Moore and, or Robert Moore rather, and Douglas Gillette. And Robert Moore is a Jungian analyst. So this book is about archetypal psychology for men. Um, And of course, with the archetypes, it's all about, you know, how do we live into our most excellent possibilities as a being? Um, And Jung said, basically, there's this constant battle between the consciousness and the unconscious, you know, the light and the shadow. And, you know, he uses a symbol of the triangle, you know, for each archetype. So the archetypes are seen as to be ways that our consciousness organizes itself. And they're apparently embedded in human psychology itself. So this is why throughout the ages, you know, there's all these mythological stories of kings and wizards and warriors and maidens. These are patterns that are how we are characterized as beings. And... When you look at the archetype, it's said that at the apex of the triangle, that's the archetype in its fullness, when it's fully expressing itself in full health. So, for example, if you're expressing the king or the queen, you have a very strong caring for the world, you're transpersonally living your life for others, you're in kind of service to a greater vision, uh, and you're bringing a sense of order and stability, not only to your life, but maybe to the lives of around you. Um, But when we get into the shadow, Young says the shadow falls down and starts to bong back and forth between excess and deficient expressions of the archetype. So that's where with the king-queen, we would have the the tyrant king, you know, who's excessively holding on to power, and then the weakling king, who is uh, basically afraid to step in and be responsible for their power. And the whole basis of the shadow is basically it's running on these unconscious, unintegrated fragments of our personality that um, kind of lash out at us every now and again and trigger us. And instead of integrating them, we get very reactive to them, you know? So ironically, it's always this kind of bouncing back and forth process. So the tyrant and the weakling king are basically one and the same in some capacities. So the tyrant king is going to want to assume a lot of power because deep down their shadow is afraid that someone's going to take it from them. And a lot of this is also the work of soul fragmentation and shamanism, you know, this idea, especially when we're quite young and innocent little children, we're so absorbing and so sensitive um, that, you know, experiences can be very traumatic to us, very intense, and we don't have... The maturity on how to process and integrate them, and really learn from them. So we, we often cut them off from us, or throw them into this compartment in our psyche, that's kind of called the shadow. It's kind of the dark, dark of our conscious. And for me, you know, the men's work was one of the ways that I really start to churn that. But probably the most powerful way that shadow has been really um, a work in my life, like something that I've really worked with, is in intimate relationships. Um, And Jung also said this, you know, he said that the best way to really actualize yourself is ironically to be in a strong relationship with another person. Because that person, if you invite them, you know, deep into your heart, they're going to see all of you, you Mm -hmm. know, your beauty, uh, but they'll also see your imperfections, which we all have, of course. Um, And then that great work can be if there's, you know, a beautiful foundation of communication and both partners are hopefully on the path of self-development where they they want to live and be better, you know, and and realizing that there's kind of an infinite uh, stage of development to that, which is really exciting at a certain point. Um, Then they can actually support each other's growth rather than as most relationships are and tragically because we're just not taught how to properly relate to each other. uh, We drag each other down. You know, Mm -hmm. as as Akartoli said, the power of now, when someone gains more light or more consciousness, you know, the person in more of their shadow, if they're not aware of themselves, their reaction will be to drag them back down, you know, because they're afraid to go into that light themselves. So when they see their their partner going there, they're they're afraid they're going to get left behind. And then or they're afraid, that means they're going to be led into facing what needs to be faced to bring that shadow back into integration. can get very... Interesting and complex and fun and scary. Totally. <laughs> All the things.
0: Oh, and relationships are greatest teachers. They have access to our deeper selves, you know, and it is, yeah, those are the great, you know, family and close relationships are our greatest teachers because we have those, those deeper connections and uh, they poke us. We poke them poking right into those, those sore spots where we get triggered and we have to face some of those areas, but it's really, really profound how fear has such a stronghold over our, Over so many actions, so many experiences in life, you know, on on both sides of the spectrum. You know, if we want to have that powerful persona, that overly powerful persona, that's based on fear, fear of loss, fear of not having being confident or competent. The fear of the other one is the fear, the weakness side, the fear of life itself, you know. So there are so many dynamics that play out that are based on fear. It's such a powerful experience that we have, or, or I don't know if you want to call it emotion or whatever it is, it's such a deeply embedded. Well,
1: and fear is, you know, to borrow from the movie Dune, you know, and Frank Herbert's books, Dune, the Dune series, you know, he says, fear is the mind killer. And, and that's one of the most atrocious ways that I think fear impacts us is that, you know, when someone becomes fearful, they become not connected to their innate wisdom, and their intelligence you know and um, and then we can be, actually do dangerous things to ourselves and others um i mean in the most subtle way it just causes maybe not to live up to our potential and to squander our life which can be you know quite a terrifying idea but also very motivating um on a certain level uh, that's Although, what i was
0: also going to say the the gold within the shadow, right? Finding the positive. Mm. So sometimes we operate under our shadow influence, but we also gain a lot from that, too. And it's seeing that you know recognizing the the gifts that the shadow has actually given us it doesn't always have to have a negative connotation attached to it at all. Um, but it is understanding yeah. these these experiences within us and what is how we are operating, what is fueling our or influencing our behaviors and our experiences. And, yeah, it's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, it needs a lot of love, you know, and 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 part of the the work of shadow work that I think is really vital and something that I'm still just figuring out is like, you know, I'm a I'm a student of mythology, so I've been very interested in how we're impacted by the historical narratives, you know, of our, our generations past, and Western culture is pretty much a hangover of Christianity, you know, and with that comes this idea that things are very dualistic, you know, very black and white, good and evil. And, you know, you can look no further than, you know, the political dramas that happen, whether it's in America with Democrats and liberals and in Canada with conservatives and liberals. I mean, politics exposes that we're still very attached to seeing things in this very um antagonistic duality whereas if you look at eastern mysticism which i have been such a student of my whole life because it's been such a panacea for that rigid dualistic system you have the yin yang symbol where you know the light and the dark is very blended you know they each have a dot of the other it's a waveform it's not a strict line it's sort of moving it's dynamic And then you look at things like Tantra, which is something that I've been, you know, probably one of my greatest loves in spirituality is this whole tradition of Tantra, which means to weave, to weave all things into the state of oneness, to not, you know, be stuck in these dualistic positions. So when it comes to the shadow, you know, at the end of the day, we have to realize this is a part of ourselves that we need to give a lot of love and attention to. It's not something that we should be afraid of um as as you've sort of alluded it's actually where a lot of our genius lies in this kind of darkness all this untapped potential so of course we want to ally with this force um we want to bring it into our being and a lot of work of shadow work really quintessentially comes down to just really being in these soft tender spaces with oneself where you can bring to fore the hidden pains and hold them as if you were your own mother and father It's almost like you're reparenting yourself, but you're no longer dependent on external factors. You know, I think the maturing into adulthood is the realization that I can actually self-source. And that doesn't mean you go it alone all the time. I mean, we're also, you know, in relationships. So we can actually draw on our intimate partners, our friends and stuff. But there is this inherent self-sourcing that we're not really told how to do properly, that we can figure out how to do. And that creates, to me... Um, that turning point with the shadow where you realize, oh, what was I so afraid of? You know, this this pain, this agony, this trigger that was always itching at me when I really sat with it. It wanted to tell me something that was probably very insightful about myself or about my life.
0: It's also the integration part, it's the integration and arriving into more wholeness. It's that it is that when you're 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 returning back to self, also uncovering your true authentic self, who you really are. I, I had this, um, I, I guess, vision or download, if you will, of this shell that we're encased in, that we that we develop throughout our life. And I called it the shell of lies. You know, these shells that keep our identity close to us of what has been formed, our even being safe and secure and how that has shaped ourselves and how that has been part of our, our uh, identity. And so when you start breaking through those layers, you arrive more at who you really are. And that also creates a lot of fear too you know really who am i at the source of this all and and being that source right. energy of of wholeness within not having the validation or, or seeking external uh validations or or uh needs to fill something within we have it all within ourselves and returning to that and finding that so that alone is this whole whole other journey right <laughs>
1: yeah totally it's <laughs> we can, amazing We can it's talk exciting. about that for
0: a long yeah for a long yeah time, sure. yeah um so let's go into the the sound healing as a great nexus of intersection between ancient wisdom and modern science. Explain a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean that that was really one of the reasons I was so in love with sound healing right from the bat was I have been only really a student of science maybe I had a spiritual awakening in my early 20s and Previous to that, signs really bored me. But once I had a spiritual awakening, one of my first spiritual teachers introduced me to the work of Lynn McTaggart, who wrote The Field, The Intention Experiment. She's, in my mind, written some of the best books on this convergence of signs and spirituality, which is one of the zeitgeist, or spirits of our ages. And I really feel that this is one of the harbingers or signs of this golden age, which is predicted that we're starting to move into is when science and spirituality confirm each other, you sort of have this blooming of universal truth mm-hmm. and you no longer have this antagonism uh, between the two, because, you know, a lot of people laud the rising of materialist science, you know, they call it the enlightenment period in the 17th century, because they say it liberated us from religious superstition. Um, but in some ways it took us then into this disenchantment period of, you know, as T.S. Eliot wrote about the wasteland of major industrialization of the world and actual destruction of the ecosphere because we lost a sense of the sacredness of the world. You know, so science and spirituality, when they're on their own, they can go into dangerous places. But now we live in this age where they're really coming together and sound healing is just one of those medicines, one of those art forms even that provides this kind of canvas, this, um, even this, wedding chamber for them to come together mm. because it is as I was speaking about earlier science is inherently about vibration you know uh, but vibration is inherently about spirit because if we get into the mystical text they say that you know spirit is this kind of vibrational conscious thing or no thing it's it's very mysterious at a certain stage and with sound healing it is about marrying the, those worlds you know the mystical world of music and sound and and then the vibrational physics of science. So it's this amazing convergence point. And I think that's one of the reasons that sound healing has just grown so exponentially because it is in this age, if we want to call it moving to the Aquarian age, it is about this this marriage of science and spirituality. And sound healing is just one of those things that defines that very clearly. And, And I think moving forward, we're gonna see much more um, just massive breakthroughs as science sort of gets over its superstitiousness. And you're seeing this with a lot of scientists, like I think of Fritjof Capra wrote The Tao of Physics in the 70s. And Irvin Laszlo is a quantum theorist. He's written books like Science in the Akashic Field. Um, A lot of scientists become mystics because when you delve into the quantum world, you're looking at higher dimensional realities. Right. where everything is connected, you know, where all of a sudden, all those mystical poems that Rumi wrote about, you know, that field beyond right and wrong, I'll meet you there. And then you have Einstein basically saying the field is everything, you know, and that what is this field, it's this this place of unity. And and that's what the quantum realm really shows us that this duality that we've been talking about is actually like, not so real, you know, as <laughs> I still have a good title for a book on this would be it doesn't matter, you know, mm-hmm. because matter doesn't really do what we think it is. It's not so solid. It's actually on a certain level, it's very mysterious and, and kind of more likened to what one would call spirit. Um, and that's why a lot of these scientists become mystics because they start to perceive this reality and they're like, my gosh, you know, the Buddhists and everything, they did, They weren't speaking about it through through numbers as we were. They were speaking more in a qualitative science of these beautiful qualities that we are now seeing are in the numbers, which yeah. is like pff, enlightening in a big way. It is.
0: it is, it is, it is. It's nice to see that, as you mentioned, the the merging of the science and the spirituality aspect. You know, the spirit, the energy, energetic side, and um, even in uh, meditation. You know, like having a lot of um, now science showing the benefits of meditation. And how it can actually really, mm-hmm. um, it can it can completely alter your your brain, your brain chemistry, your brain makeup. Uh, so it's nice to see that uh, happening within us and within our society. So you're right, things are changing wow. really fast, and there are a lot of these conversations and technologies, of course, that are that are coming up. There's also the other side of it, which we won't get into <laughs> because that oh, is, yeah. you know there are AI
1: transhumanism,
0: are... <laughs> 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 totally. Yeah, can yeah, get really sure. freaky. I know. Um, so I'm really curious to know about your Druid reference so you mentioned um as being a sound healer and a sacred musician uh you're also a Druid what does this mean exactly
1: <laughs> well I mean I, I use this term very loosely um because I think you know I I call you know my newsletters called the Druid but in in actual reality I was calling it more of like a third person like thing like the Druid or like the walrus like which is a a famous Canadian magazine. Right. Um I'm very interested in druidry and in some ways you know I have a friend who did some druidic training cuz I've never done formal training in it it's it's actually sadly there's an unbroken or there is a break in the actual lineage of druidry because of this kind of unspoken colonization of the European tribal races the celts and the druids were known to be the kind of priests and priestesses of the celtic the Celtic tribes that lived in a lot of Britannia, but they migrated to even Egypt and India, apparently, and they were revered, um, kind of like Western yogis and mystics. And So for me, I, I got very interested in Druidry when I was on that journey of reclaiming my own indigenous ancestry as European through my indigenous elder. And I just I just started reading about the Druids, you know, and it started to just become super fascinating to me as an idea. But we don't have a lot of primary source material about them because they were unfortunately wiped out by the Romans um, when they invaded Britain and then eventually colonized it and conquered it. Um, so nowadays you have this kind of dru- what they call a neo-Druid revival. It's kind of this new Druid revival where people are sort of you know, reinventing sort of ideas, you know, people are channeling ideas, they're looking back at mythology, but a lot of it is like, people are sort of making things up in a way, but they're gleaning from their own intuitive truth about it. Um, So it's an exciting time, you know, and here in the UK, there is a Order of the Druids Parts and Ovates organization. Um, One thing about the Druids that was definitely very like inspiring to me, and why I've like wield this word a lot, is that um, my astrologer always said I was supposed to do three things in my life, you know, and to never do more than that. And the Druids were traditionally three different um, vocations. So the training to be a Druid was 21 years, I'm told. And you would start with seven years of training to be the Bard. So the Bard is the storyteller. It's the musician. Um, It's also the inspired kind of improvisational channeling musician through this. source of creative inspiration from the divine called the all and and actually have a, a tattoo of the all on my arm um because when i found this idea of all i was like oh well that makes a lot of sense of how i make my music just as kind of improvised channeling um and then the next stage for the next seven years is the ove which is the healer this is where you learn about different healing modalities working with the plant kingdom and the herbs and healing your psychology and all these kinds of amazing outputs And then the last phase is the druid, and the druid is said to be kind of the sage, the philosopher, the guider, the person who actually will guide the king and the queen of the realm um, and, you know, holds a station as priest, priestess. Um, And I've always just seen that as like, oh, that just helps me make a lot of sense about myself (laughs) because I've always had all these different parts and I'm like, how does it all make sense? And in the ancient world, you know, they were more holistic about things. We, we live in this age where it's all about like niche marketing and being a specialist. And right. I've always kind of had an allergy to that in a way. Mm-hmm. So when I discovered some of these ideas about Druidry, it just like, whew, it was almost like I found a bit of a haven for this kind of wild Gemini-ness of my soul.
0: <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Where do you see yourself going with it? Do you have any future visions or is it more in the present moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm writing uh, my next, I don't know if it'll be my next book, um, but I'm working on a a spiritual fiction trilogy right now, where um, it's, it's kind of a play on the King Arthur myth. And there's a young character, Arthur, and there's this older male teacher, Merlin. And so there is a lot of this kind of druidic thought in this story. And it's all about reclaiming the sacred connection with the earth um to sort of r- inspire in my mind one of the most important things right now is to be in relationship to the earth you know because we're, we're already going through so many transformations we're going to go through a lot more mm-hmm. and t- to me there's nothing like being in nature and realizing that we're guided by this mother force you know which is what all the indigenous people have been telling us you know and and on a very practical matter just throw some seeds in the land wow you got food unconditional love she is the embodiment of that and in a lot of ways, a lot of the struggles we're going through right now is because she's just like shaking us being like, come back to my arms, right. <laughs> you know, right. I, I've i got I've got you, you know, in ways you can't even imagine. Hmm. Um, and and the Druids were, you know, that point of access for a lot of the indigenous Europeans they are the ones that would help really uh, illustrate that relationship and define it through ritual and ceremony.
0: So as we finalize here, I'm going to go into a quote that you wrote down, which I absolutely love. And then we're going to uh, hear a quote from your new book as well, right? We want to have a little bit of a glimpse into your your new book. So you have here this beautiful um, passage that I took from your site here. I'm going to read it. So we are on the verge of turning a dark age into light to co-create a birth of a new golden age where science and spirituality converge to align our lives with universal truth. I'm humbled, honored, and passionate to contribute to the great awakening and reenchantment of our world. So that was a beautiful, beautiful quote here from Darren. And um, this is where we are going. We are moving towards this, this new earth, this new golden age. And uh, it's quite an interesting time to be in. So I'm so grateful to have you here and honored. And um, we need you to keep leading <laughs> it. So keep doing what you're doing. need you
1: too. <laughs> yeah, um, uh,
0: so absolutely. Let- yeah, let's hear from your book. Let's hear it. It's more on the shadow. So we're going to go back to yeah. the topic of the shadow.
1: Yeah. So yeah, in lieu of the shadow, there's the fourth chapter in the book is called um, Dancing with Darkness. And um, there's a series of, the book is a collection of, of essays and poems uh, about love and sacred sexuality and romance and conscious partnership. And um, I thought this would be a very fitting piece. It's called uh, Shadow Dancing. The next time you do something that you commonly chastise yourself for doing, something dark, sketchy, addictive-compulsive behavior, instead of smacking yourself with shame, warping your self-worth, bludgeoning yourself with blame, breathe. Deeply, gently, intimately. So present with breath that it becomes a loving offering onto yourself, so deftly formed and initiated. Imagine embracing yourself energetically, totally and unconditionally. The shameful reprimands may be there, howling beneath the surface of awareness from years of being energized, looking to be fed. Breathe into them, especially hold them in the loving embrace of your energetic field. If it gets really intense, too intense, visualize yourself as a small child who has committed this so-called boo-boo. And imagine being the perfect mother-father to them, calling them in with warm heartfulness, stroking their hair, acknowledging the pain at the root of this behavior that is really simply a desperate attempt to escape from it. Tell them nothing. Hold them with everything. In time when this fragility in you has calmed some, tell them how much you believe in them, how perfect they are in all their wounds and glory. Kiss their soul with the piercing light of your heart. Tell them whatever happens, however grand the fault may appear, you will be there with this ferocity of love, this unwavering commitment to be the love that leaves nothing behind. This is how healing starts and real love begins.
0: Mm, Beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. My pleasure. Love's revolution.
0: There you go. So I will be on Amazon. (laughs) Yes. I'll leave a link below video and podcast as well. And where else can people find you just as a side note here? What's the best way to contact? I'll leave some information as well for everyone.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm on Instagram at Darren Druid and then all of my music is up on all music stream platforms, Apple music, Spotify. And um, I have a YouTube channel. If you search Darren Austin Hall and I've lots of content there. um, Lots of, you know, different talks and music videos and sound healing meditations. There's there's a lot on that channel that's really, I think, really good.
0: Thank you, Darren, so much for being here. And everyone, Darren Austin Hall, make sure to look him up and we'll be hearing more from you, I'm very sure. So thank you again for being here. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Absolutely.